The views expressed on this podcast may not represent those of March of Dimes or its staff. Information presented on this podcast is not medical advice and should not be construed as such. When in doubt, seek competent medical advice. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to ModCast, a new research podcast from the March of Dimes. ModCast is a podcast on the most impactful maternal and neonatal health research conducted today. I'm your host, Alessia Plahi. To say that David McIntyre is excited about the future is an understatement. As one of the directors of the March of Dimes Prematurity Research Center at Imperial College London, Professor McIntyre has been leading the scientific effort to uncover the links between the vaginal microbiome and preterm birth. And it's been a fruitful journey, to say the least. Study after study, his work and the work of his team has taught the scientific and medical community much of what we know today about vaginal microbiome and preterm birth, and the breakthroughs just keep on coming. Last October, Professor McIntyre published the group's findings in the prestigious journal Nature Communications. This study was on the links between microbiome, inflammation, and preterm birth, and a test that could be used to help doctors and patients. The study detailed a novel device that could, in under two minutes, identify the type of bacteria in a vaginal microbiome and determine if it is causing inflammation. That information, in turn, could help doctors identify women at high risk of preterm birth and offer them monitoring and targeted treatment strategies earlier in pregnancy. These treatments hold promise to prolong gestation and potentially prevent preterm birth. This is big. The closest thing we have now that identifies bacteria and inflammation is incredibly expensive, time-consuming, we're talking eight hours to see results inside a laboratory, and not quite ready for prime-time introduction into routine bedside testing. The test Professor McIntyre's group has developed, however, is user-friendly, fast, and cost-efficient. Imagine, in the near future, a healthcare provider could take a swab of a woman's vagina test it at the bedside, and almost instantaneously know whether that woman is carrying the types of bacteria that could increase her risk of preterm birth based on the bacteria's inflammatory profile. This is very, very exciting. Professor McIntyre, who is here with us today, is going to discuss the test and what it means for preterm birth prediction, care, and prevention. Professor McIntyre is a co-director of the March of Dimes Prematurity Research Center at Imperial College London, where he also serves as a professor of reproductive systems medicine in the Institute of Reproductive and Developmental Biology. Professor McIntyre, welcome to ModCast. Hi, Alessia. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you on. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field and where your passion for um, preterm birth and, and the microbiome came from? 
Sure. So uh, a bit about myself. Uh, as you can probably already tell from my accent, I'm originally from Australia. I think you sound very British. Really? Yes. Oh, gosh. If, yes. I'm going to tell all my British colleagues that. They'll be, they'll be outraged. <laughs> <laughs> I did a PhD in a small city there called Newcastle, and it happened to be on preterm birth. I was actually very fortunate at the time to be working with two great supervisors, uh, N. Cheng Chan and Roger Smith. And it was a, a really fun and, and fruitful project working actually on understanding how the uterus starts to contract at the time of birth. And uh, that was involving a, a series of methodologies and techniques called proteomics, uh, which is a fancy word for measuring lots of different proteins at the same time. But it was a very new technique at the time and it really sparked my interest in that type of approach to science, measuring lots of different things simultaneously. Uh, and this is collectively known now as systems biology. So I moved uh, after my PhD to Valencia in Spain. Uh, I started to do some more work in another one of these omics fields called metabolomics. And it's actually where I met my now wife, uh, who was also a scientist. And uh, after about four years in Spain, we were then offered uh, jobs at Imperial College London. And so we moved here in 2010. It's where we've uh, now made our home. Uh, and we've had a couple of lovely boys, Callum and Alvaro. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how we find ourselves here. So the move to Imperial was incredibly exciting for us. Uh, and for me, it was particularly exciting because it gave me an opportunity to come back into the field of pregnancy and preterm birth and start to apply some of the technologies and methods that I'd, I'd been learning about in, uh, in my time in Spain. And it was also a fantastic opportunity for me to work with uh, one of the giants of our field of preterm birth research, uh, Professor Philip Bennett. So he's internationally renowned for his work on uh, inflammation and infection in pregnancy and preterm birth. So uh, yeah, as soon as I arrived in the UK, actually I was very fortunate to be awarded a fellowship from the Medical Research Council, um, which really enabled me to establish my own research team and, and then start to dedicate and focus a lot of my research on understanding the role that uh, the reproductive tract microbiome plays in shaping women's health and, and understanding how uh, or what that can, might mean for particular outcomes for mothers and babies in pregnancy in particular. Well, before I ask you about the test, I would like you to set the stage for us and explain exactly what the interplay is between the vaginal microbiome inflammation and preterm birth. These, these three big factors, how do they get along? Do they influence one another? It appears they do. What is the deal with these three guys? Yeah, yeah so I might start by covering a little bit of background information about what the microbiome actually is for your listeners. So a simple definition uh, of the microbiome is that it, it is the collection of microbes that colonize different parts of our body. So when we're talking about microbes in this context, we're talking about bacteria, viruses, fungi, archaea. And a lot of people have probably heard about the gut microbiome, but the reproductive tract microbiome of women, in particularly the lower reproductive tract, the vagina, the cervix, they're colonized by very, very high numbers of microbes. Uh, most of these are good bacteria. I'm, I'm doing the air in uh, you know, comma marks, which you can't see right now, as this is a podcast, but these good bacteria we know are very, very important in shaping um, a risk of infection and, and helping to stop pathogenic bacteria from causing infections. And that's really where we start to think about how the microbiome influences uh, and interacts with inflammation and preterm birth. So before I, I, I talk too much about that, we probably should cover a little bit of background about how inflammation ties in with human birth. 
um, and particularly human uh, normal birth at term, not just preterm birth. So we know that at the end of a healthy pregnancy, there is the activation of pathways in the gestational tissues that involve inflammation. Uh, and, and this inflammation activation, um, which is triggered by multiple different factors, we think it's triggered by signals from the baby as well as signals from mum. This helps the uterus to start to contract in a coordinated way, which is critical for helping to expel the baby out of the uterus. The fetal membranes or the amniotic sac that the baby is sitting in needs to rupture and that rupture event is an inflammatory process. And the cervix or the neck of the womb uh, of, or the uterus, it has to become soft and pliable. This is a, a process known as cervical ripening. Uh, and this is also an inflammatory mediated process. So this type of inflammation that occurs at the end of uh, pregnancy is, is usually occurring without the presence of infection or any kinds of microbes at all. It's what we sometimes describe as sterile inflammation. But what can happen is that in the presence of, uh, of a pathogen colonization or an infection, the normal immunological response to that infection by the mother actually activates these inflammatory pathways too soon in the pregnancy. Mm. And that can lead then to untimely switching on of all of those types of things I've just described to you. Mm. So the cervix can become softer and shorter too soon in pregnancy. Mm. The amniotic sac can sometimes rupture too soon in pregnancy. Mm. And of course, then this can ultimately lead to the, the uterus starting to contract soon too, too soon as well. Wow. Okay. So inflammation isn't always a bad thing. Inflammation is involved in the beautiful process of term birth, but also if it's if it's activated too early as a result of these quote unquote bad flora in the vaginal microbiome, it can then cause preterm birth. Absolutely. You've got it. So question, random question on the vaginal microbiome. Is this a relatively new field of study? I mean, you talked about the gut microbiome. Most people are aware of that. The vaginal microbiome, at what point did scientists realize that this existed and that it might be very, very important? That's a good question. So it's, the, I think the awareness of how important the vaginal microbiome is in shaping women's health in general, not just in pregnancy, but at other key stages of a woman's life has probably only been appreciated for around the last uh, decade to 15 years or so. Hmm. And that's largely because the technology required to be able to study and to measure and detect all of these different types of microbes has only really started to um, uh, be developed and made available in that time frame. I should point out though that a link between the lower reproductive tract and microbial uh, colonization has actually been established, or the importance of that, I should say, in, in the context of pregnancy and preterm birth, that has been established for decades. So a good example is relying on simple culture and microscopy. We've known since the 1980s that women who have uh, bacterial vaginosis, which is a very, very common uh, in type of infection of the vagina, they are at higher risk of preterm birth. But what the new technologies have allowed us to understand now is, is really what types of species of bacteria are present um, because a lot of those other types of methods that we use like culture and microscopy don't really give us sufficient information to understand precisely what species uh, are there. 
So it's, it's really uh, a, a relatively new area, um, but, but it's an incredibly fast moving field. There is really important relationships being drawn between the vaginal microbiome and a lot of different areas of women's health. Um, and, and, and obviously we'll cover a lot uh, of that today in the context of pregnancy. You mentioned that one of the reasons that this um, field of the vaginal microbiome has has grown exponentially in interest and understanding of how important it is over the last 15 years is because technologies have become available to identify and measure and um, tell us about these bacteria in the reproductive tract, the lower tract. And your test is adding to that technology in a big, big way. So let's talk about this test. How does it work exactly? Um, does it identify both the types of bacteria in the microbiome and whether they are causing inflammation? Or does it just say, okay, bacteria A is present. We know from previous studies this can lead to inflammation. So we will say that there is a higher risk here um, of inflammation. Or does it actually identify, yes, it's causing inflammation or no, it's not? So I'll start with describing how the test works. Yes. The name of the test is a bit of a mouthful. It's called direct swab analysis by DESI-MS. That part's simple and mm -hmm. easy to say. The DESI-MS part stands for desorption, electrospray, ionization, mass spectrometry. Wow. So we'll just refer to it as DESI. <laughs> but it works in a relatively simple way, conceptually. Uh, the engineering has been a little bit more tricky to, to develop out, but it works by taking a simple clinical vaginal swab, which almost all women will have had many of these types of swabs. We place that swab into our device. We beam a solution of chemicals onto the swab surface where different molecules and chemicals that are part of the, the mucosal sample that we've taken, the vaginal swab sample that we've taken, they are dissolved. And then they're taken up through a small vacuum tube into a mass spectrometer which is a big machine that enables us to identify and measure the different levels of all of these different chemicals that are there. And what it does then in that period of time is produces a very detailed chemical signature. And we've worked out that specific parts of that chemical signature can be used to predict the different types of microbes that are present on the swab. And importantly, and simultaneously, we can use those chemical signatures to determine whether or not there's inflammation present in that type of a sample. So at the moment, if I first of all talk a little bit about uh, how we're able to predict the microbiome component on the swab, we're really limited to, at this stage, predicting the types of bacterial communities that are present on the swab. As I mentioned a little bit earlier on, that microbiome, that, that collection of microbes, really contains uh, or, or involves not just bacteria, but viruses and fungi as well. But what we're focusing on is really the bacteria, which we know is, a, is probably one of the most com important components of the microbiome, particularly in the context of, of containing the types of pathogens and bacteria that could cause preterm birth. So, so what we've done is we've been able to identify the major types of bacterial communities that our previous work and also the work of plenty of other groups around the world have been able to link to preterm birth risk. So just describe briefly what those types of bacterial communities uh, look like compositionally. So the vast majority of women who are healthy are carrying as uh, a microbiome that is dominated by just one or two different types of bacterial species that are called lactobacillus. 
And these bugs or, or bacteria provide a lot of fantastic benefit to, to the host or to the woman in that they help prevent other pathogens from being able to adhere and attach to either the vaginal epithelial cells or the cervical epithelial cells. They also are producing a lot of lactic acid, which is um, able to help stop other bacteria from being able to grow in that acidic environment. Um, and they're also actively producing a lot of antibacterial and antimicrobial compounds, which again helps to create a very hostile environment in and around the cervix and the vagina that they're able to thrive in and help prevent uh, other pathogens from growing. So they're like bodyguards. Yeah, they are absolutely they are, they are like bodyguards, sort of protecting the cervix and the, and the uterus above that. Now. What we have shown, and, and as I've mentioned, others have also been able to replicate these findings, is that in pregnancy, if you lose those healthy lactobacillus species, those bodyguards, and you have a shift towards an, what we call a suboptimal or a high-risk microbiome type, which is lacking the lactobacillus species and instead has, is, is much higher in diversity, it has a lot of different types of potentially pathogenic bacteria, and these are bacteria that are very similar to the types of bacteria we find in other infectious conditions in the vagina, like in women who are suffering from bacterial vaginosis, then this can cause an, an immune response to these types of potentially pathogenic bacteria, which can then drive on that inflammatory response that I've mentioned to you before in the cervix and around the fetal membranes that can then activate the pathways leading to early onset of labor. So having identified in these previous studies the different types of bacterial communities that are associated with preterm birth risk, what our test is able to do is to use unique chemical signatures that we can robustly um, ob observe in women who are carrying those different types of bacterial communities. So if we take a swab, as you've already mentioned, within just a couple of minutes, that chemical signature that we've obtained can tell us whether or not we have the good microbial community dominated by the healthy bodyguard types of lactobacillus species, or whether or not we have one of the other suboptimal microbial communities that have, uh, have the higher diversity uh, and, and enriched with potentially pathogenic bacteria. But the really cool thing is that we've also been able to show that the same chemical signature that we obtain gives us enough information to predict whether or not we also have inflammation in that swab. And they're two pieces of information that we think together really are important for helping to inform clinical decision making and also to identify those women most at risk potentially of preterm birth or other adverse outcomes in pregnancy. Yeah, and that's that's the real cru crucial part here is the inflammation. And that's because, and I learned this from you on a background call that we had prior to recording this podcast, is that the real bad guy in the room is not these other bacterias, but it's whether they're causing inflammation. And in fact, they don't always cause inflammation for everyone, right? Absolutely. In fact, I think that's the, that's the key uh, kind of take-home message here is that not all women who are carrying these, what we define probably in a, in, a, in a slightly inaccurate way as these suboptimal communities, will necessarily have a strong immune response to them. But being able to very quickly determine whether or not you have the higher risk types of microbes present, and secondly, whether or not they're actually causing inflammation, 
That, that's the two layers of information that we think are, is really, really clear. Now, why certain women don't immunologically respond to certain uh, community compositions of bacteria is really a bit of an unknown. Uh, work that we've been doing here in our March of Dimes Center, Prematurity Research Center at Imperial, with uh, Dr. Lynn Sykes, for example, is starting to give us some in insight into what might be happening in, in some of these women. Uh, last year, we published in, in, in a different publication in Nature Communications, some early work that we've been doing looking at very specific immunological responses to these optimal and suboptimal microbial communities. And what we're finding is that in women who are carrying these suboptimal or high-risk microbe, microbial uh, communities, who are having a very specific type of an immune response and are activating a pathway of, of, of the immune response called the complement pathway, they are the women who are most at risk of then subsequently having preterm birth. Now at the moment we've been able to show that in relatively small numbers, but we think that if we can uh, validate those findings in larger populations, then this would be a fantastic way in which we can couple those two pieces of information that our test gives us, the microbiome comp compositional information and the immunological response to help inform uh, risk stratification strategies, for example, to identify women at most risk of preterm birth, but also potentially the types of treatment responses that a clinician could use to optimize treatment. Right. And, and um, you mentioned Dr. Lynn Sykes. We will be interviewing her on the podcast. Um, and uh, she, she she told me, and um, certainly I know I know you know this as well, is that there is yet another wild card in the mix, which is that not only do not all women uh, have inflammation from the bad bacteria, but even women that do have inflammation don't go on uh, to have preterm birth. So, some women that do have inflammation. Do we know anything about why? Yeah, it's, it's an intriguing uh, thing to think about and, and it just highlights the complexity of what we're dealing with here. Right. Preterm birth is often actually considered to be a syndrome. It's treated clinically largely as one type of disease, but uh, as you're touching upon here, there are actually probably a lot of different ways in which that inflammation can be activated in women uh, leading to preterm birth and some of them are potentially non-microbial. At the moment, our data has focused on the bacterial component of the microbiome, but it is possible that in some of these women, there might be a viral infection that could be causing some inflammation. But in other women, it could be something that's, as I mentioned, non-microbial. Now, why those women who do appear to have some inflammation in the lower reproductive tract, yet don't go on to have preterm birth, why that occurs, we're still investigating. We've got to remember that in some of our studies, well, in fact, all of our studies, we're often taking samples very early on in pregnancy. And women who are at risk of preterm birth, because for example, they may have uh, been shown to have cervical shortening, which is usually uh, measured by a, a vaginal ultrasound, they will be likely receiving some kind of a therapeutic or surgical intervention to help reduce the risk of preterm birth. Now, that's an issue that we have with this field is that we really only have two potential interventions to try to prevent preterm birth in these types of women. One is progesterone therapy, and the second is a cervical cyclage or a cervical stitch. Now, in some women, we will find that they are effective, but in many women, those, those treatment strategies simply won't work. So it's possible that what we are seeing is sometimes is that there is some inflammation present, 
the women might undergo some form of treatment or intervention that in some cases does resolve that inflammation. But currently there's not a lot of longitudinal follow-up to those types of women, particularly in, in a normal clinical environment. They're visiting their, their, their obs and gynae specialists you know, on a couple of occasions throughout pregnancy to make sure everything's going okay. One of the things we're excited about and we, we, we see as being a potential application of our test is that it's cheap, it's quick. Ultimately, we want to be able to have the potential or the possibility of measuring women at many different stages throughout their pregnancy so that we can monitor whether or not the microbial communities are shifting and changing and if the, there is a similar kind of change in their inflammatory responses because we think that that type of dynamic response to the microbiome might actually be the key factor here that would uh, increase one's chance of preterm birth. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned it's fast and it's cheap. How did you make it that way? <laughs> I think we've, we've had a little bit of luck in the, in, in the sense that the technology platform that it's built upon is relatively cheap to, to uh, obtain the types of information that, that we're working on. A huge advantage of the technology is that we do not need to do any kind of sample preparation to obtain these chemical signatures. Uh, we simply take the swab, place it into the machine, and within two minutes we have the detailed chemical information. Now that means that in the future, as we scale up, we would hope to make this really, really cheap and affordable. As, an, as, a, as a sort of an example to what we're, and, and to sort of give you a, a different point of view as to what's happening currently in, in clinics, if a woman wants to have, uh, or a clinician wants to have some vaginal diagnostics performed, we're really limited in the most instances to culture or microscopy. Now they are both cheap methods, they're, they're, they're very, uh, robust methods. However, they're very time consuming in most instances. If you're trying to specifically culture out a, a pathogen that you suspect might be causing an infection, that can take days to weeks. Similarly, microscopy, while being cheap, it's very subjective. If I look down a microscope and see a type of a shape of a bacteria or a staining pattern, uh, somebody else who is equally as trained as I am might see something totally different. So the newer methodologies that are slowly making their way into clinical diagnostics, what we call uh, molecular-based tools, so things like next-generation sequencing or immunoassays, these do provide us with uh, a, a better insight and a, and, and a more complete insight into the types of microbes that are present in these samples, but they require a, a lot of sample preparation, a lot of sample processing. They're very expensive and they're quite time-consuming, and they need to be done separately. So you need to take a sample, analyze the microbiome compo uh, component, and then a separate sample to then analyze the immunological component. So we're getting all that type of information all simultaneously. So we're getting kind of extra bang for your buck, two for the price of one. So these, these types of things combined uh, really make this uh, an affordable um, uh, test. And moving forward, as I mentioned, um, given uh, the, the ideas that we have of scaling up, we think it, it, it would be a, a much, much cheaper and affordable type of test for getting this type of information out compared to what's currently on the market. Well, that's a big congratulations to you and your team. That's a big deal. That's innovation right there at its finest. You guys created something simpler, cheaper, faster, better than what exists now. So hats off. Thank you very much. And, and all congratulations goes to my team. All right, so the big question is, 
what does this mean for pregnant women who could have the bad bacteria, who could have the inflammation, who could have the risk of preterm birth? So why is this test important? We've talked about it throughout, but I just want to ask you directly, how will this change a woman's care? So there is a couple of ways in which we envision this type of a test eventually being implemented or introduced into the clinical care pathway in pregnancy. As we've talked uh, quite a lot about, we, we do recognize and understand that the microbiome, the reproductive tract microbiome in particular, is a risk factor for preterm birth. So we need methods and ways to which we can identify women who are carrying these suboptimal microbiomes uh, that, are, that are causing inflammation that puts these women at higher risk of preterm birth. So one potential way in which this test would be used is that a woman on her first visit uh, to the clinic uh, would undergo our simple test. We would be able to track her microbiome and immunological responses to that microbiome in a cheap and affordable and quick way. And those women then who are identified to be at risk, there are actually a number of potential things that we might be able to do about it because we hear a lot about these different types of tests or diagnostics that are, that are uh, 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 produce, but often there's not a lot that can be done about it. In the case of the microbiome, there are a number of different therapeutics that can be used to modify the microbiome. Obviously, everybody will be aware of the use of antibiotics. We need to be cautious with the way in which we use antibiotics. We know that uh, if we were to try to discourage or try to um, uh, uh, remove certain microbes from the vaginal microbiome, there's not really any good antibiotics that are going to be able to do that in a, in, a, in a particularly selective way. And in fact, some of our earlier work has shown that women who receive antibiotics in pregnancy, things like macrolides, uh, erythromycin as, as an example, um, in most instances, of course, the, it's, it's in a, ne in a necessary uh, treatment strategy uh, to reduce risk of infection. But as a consequence of that type of therapy, we, we also not only kill the pathogenic bacteria, but we kill all of the good, healthy bacteria in the microbiome. So a strategy might be of trying, uh, might involve trying to also replenish and encourage the growth of the good, healthy microbes, the gatekeepers that we talked about before, the lactobacillus species. And we've actually been involved in the first in-pregnancy trial of one of these types of uh, so-called live biotherapeutics. They used to be called uh, probiotics, particularly uh, the first trial of a, of a vaginally administered or vaginally, as you say in the United States, administered uh, probiotic, where we showed in a small number of women, so this was a, a recently published study from our team, uh, where we showed that uh, th this, this vaginally administered probiotic is very safe, was very well tolerated, um, and we're now undertaking uh, a very detailed uh, investigation looking at the immunological responses and the microbiological responses to that product being used in pregnancy. But we're really excited about that being a potential way in which we could encourage the good bacteria to grow and discourage the bad bacteria to grow. David, can I just ask a sure. clarifying question with the, the with the trial that you just mentioned and the and the probiotics? Is this one? Um, I don't know if it's a a tablet that you administer or what it is um, into the vaginal canal. It both kills the bad guys and gives you more of the good guys at the same time. That's a really interesting question. It doesn't kill the bad guys. In fact, we've shown that it is able to displace the bad guys in most instances. So. One of the things we're very cautious of, as I've mentioned, is the use of antibiotics. 
in non-pregnant women, that product has been used after an antibiotic course. So the idea being perhaps remove the bad guys first of all and then put the good guys back in. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily want to use antibiotics in that way in pregnancy if we can avoid that. So we've just trialed it as being directly placed into the into the cervical vaginal niche and shown that it, it is colonizing very well uh, and we'll be, we'll be uh, putting that data out uh, quite soon. But it's got that dual function, displacing bad and mm. adding good. Exactly. Very cool. Exactly. Okay, and that goes into yes. the cervix. It goes into the vagina, into the mid-vagina, and it's actually, uh, it's, a, it's a device that looks very similar to a tampon. Okay. And, and it's essentially, yeah, a, a, a lyophilized form of the, the bacteria that's um, sprayed inside the vagina. And when you say displaced, what, where do they go? What do we do with them? Do we deactivate them or something? Do we put them to sleep? Good question. We, we, we don't entirely know. There is some likely things that we, we believe are happening. As the good bacteria start to dominate the niche, the bacteria that we've put there, yes. they're actively starting to metabolize and use as their food sources uh, glycogen, which is present in the vaginal epithelial cells. And they convert this into things like lactic acid. And that lactic acid then does kill the bad guys. Okay. And that's part of the mechanism we think that enables that displacement of of at least some of these different types of potentially pathogenic bacteria and then once they've got that foothold it makes it very very hard for those bad bacteria to grow back right right so the entire time that we've been talking we've been talking about identifying this bacteria to see if it causes inflammation to see if if uh, we can make any prediction about a woman's risk of preterm birth yet you've multiple times said very strongly this is not a test for preterm birth but we are talking about preterm birth it's very much related so what is it going to take for this test which is not a test for preterm birth, but a test for uh, the flora in the vaginal microbiome and inflammation, what will it take from us to get from where we are now with this test to a test for preterm birth? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the million dollar question. What we've done so far on our pregnancy population has been limited to, from the published data, limited to around 400 women of whom uh, a much smaller proportion of them actually had a preterm birth. And as we've discussed, preterm birth can be caused by so many different factors. Many of these factors are not necessarily an infection or a microbiome associated factor at all. And so when we're doing these types of studies, we really do need to, to do them in very large numbers. So we're currently undertaking a study called the Thousand Woman Study, where we're taking multiple swabs from women uh, in early pregnancy, uh, we've just actually recruited our, uh, our 1,000th patient uh, uh, last month. So we've just wrapped up that, the sampling uh, portion of that study. They're the types of numbers uh, that we believe we're going to need to have sufficient representation of women who are actually having the types of infection-associated or microbiome-associated preterm births that we will need to have to uh, customize and tailor our assay or our test to be able to predict microbe associated preterm birth risk. So that's what we're currently doing. We're we're hopeful of being able to achieve that within the next couple of years. In the meantime, we still strongly believe that the types of information that our test is designed for, which you've correctly stated is for predicting the microbiota composition and the inflammatory response can still be used in a useful way. So we're very, very keen to still push ahead and try to get this 
uh, uh, to patients as soon as we possibly can. Well, so where where are we with that? In October, when you published the study, your team was registering the test and seeking regulatory approval for its use in the UK and Europe. How is that going? And are there any next steps? And uh, maybe the US, for example, and Canada and Australia, your home country. What is the status? We'd love to, we'd love to see this get out to, to, to everywhere. Yes. There are, there are several different steps that we need to take to be able to transition this into the clinic. And one of the major steps that was uh, uh, one of the limitations was the size of the machinery that we were using. The original uh, prototype that we used to do the, the work that was published in Nature Communications was using a mass spectrometer that is about the size of a large uh, f- uh, fridge freezer. Uh, so you can imagine that that's not very portable, that's not very conducive to uh, bedside testing. What we've been able to do, and we'll be again putting this out into the, into the public domain and publishing on this uh, very, very soon, is convert our test now down to a portable small format mass spectrometer. This has been incredibly exciting. Uh, we're getting a lot of uh, different data sets analyzed now on this small, fat, small format uh, mass spectrometer. This is a device that's about the size of a uh, a, a, a computer monitor or a microwave. It can be pushed around on a small trolley and this then opens up the possibility of doing this test in multiple locations in a portable way in, at the bedside uh, in clinical environments. This mass spectrometer is also uh, approved for the type of diagnostic applications that we intend to use it for. So we're getting closer and closer to ticking all the regulatory uh, boxes that we need to. We've also been able to protect the intellectual pop- property around the, uh, the patterns and the chemical signatures that we're using to predict uh, the microbiota composition and inflammatory status in multiple countries around the world. And that means that we're now in the process, in fact, the very final stages of spinning out a company uh, from Imperial based on this tech, which is really necessary to enable us to get this technology to the market and to patients as quickly as, as possible. So we've been having you know, a lot of fun over the last few months talking to potential investors and, and partners. And in fact, only yesterday, I was given an opportunity to present our, our technology to several members of the United States Department of Business and Trade who were visiting London. So it's all very exciting. It's very new for us, um, transition of, of, of this type of technology to, to market is something that we don't have a lot of experience in, but we have fantastic infrastructure here in Imperial uh, and elsewhere to enable this to happen. So. It's, it's an exciting but a very busy time at the moment. Yes, absolutely. I do have another question about this, the, the test. Um, when can it be taken to work? Is, is, it, is it, you know, the first pregnancy test that a woman gets um, at, at, you know, potentially one day after her missed period, four weeks pregnant, eight weeks pregnant, or are we talking about third trimester only? And a related question here is, does a woman's vaginal microbiome change throughout her pregnancy? Meaning, again, it's going back to the same question, can the test only be taken at a certain time in order to be accurate? Yeah, they're they're great questions. I'll start with the the first part of the question, which is when can the test be taken? We've now shown that we can accurately predict the microbiota composition and immunological status of, of a sample at multiple stages of pregnancy. Great and even in non-pregnant women. Wow. So potentially this can be used at any stage of a woman's life. 
So but that's does that the first mean that thing. a woman and who is not pregnant, you can you, the test can be used on her to see if she will develop bad, uh, a, a kind of a potentially harmful and inflammatory vaginal microbiome in pregnancy, or no, just it, what she has at that moment. That that would be limited to her uh, her non-pregnant state. Mm-hmm. Now okay. that's important okay. anyway because we know that an inflammatory microbiome in the vagina puts an individual at risk of other infections, STIs, HIV, for example, but it also is a risk factor for developing uh, and, and the progression of cervical cancer okay. and pre-cervical cancer. So there is good reasons, even in a non-pregnant state, why, why a woman should try to have an optimal microbiome. And that is a, an optimal microbiome for her. We've touched upon this already, right. but being able to show that the, the microbes present in the lower reproductive tract and not eliciting any type of inflammatory response is very, very important. Now, I'll come to your second part of the question, which relates to uh, whether or not that microbiome is something that is stable throughout mm-hmm. a woman's lifespan or during pregnancy or, right. or if it's changing. Right. And in fact, the microbiome of the lower reproductive tract does change. It is relatively dynamic. We have some idea as to what are some of the factors that are causing changes in the microbes and the inflammatory state of the lower reproductive tract. The first is uh, probably very obvious to many people, and that is hormones. So for example, we know that estrogen, as levels of estrogen go up and up and up uh, in, in different stages of the cycle, and also in pregnancy, this encourages lactobacillus species to grow. We think that mechanism by which it encourages the growth of these types of species involves uh, what's called maturation of the vaginal epithelia. So this is where there is a buildup of glycogen, a type of a complex sugar inside the vaginal epithelia or the, or the, the wall of the vagina. And this type of complex sugar can actually be broken down into other types of sugars which can be preferentially used as energy by these lactobacillus species. So that's part of the way in which we think hormones are helping to regulate whether or not you have more or less of a certain species. Now, there are a lot of other factors that can also influence the microbial composition. So for example, sexual activity, uh, the use of certain hygiene products, antibiotic treatment. I touched upon this before, but if an individual takes an antibiotic treatment for say a, a chest infection, there is likely to be some form of an impact on the microbial communities elsewhere in the body. And that's certainly the case. Um, uh, for the vagina. So it's not that uh, a woman shouldn't take that antibiotic if she's been instructed to take that antibiotic uh, by her her medical professional. It's it's likely for a good reason, but there is often uh, a side effects to that. And one of those side effects is disturbing the microbial communities elsewhere, including in the vagina. And so it's important that an individual would, would be able to sort of monitor that and, and, and determine whether or not their microbiome has eventually recovered back to an optimal state. And that's another place in which we, or another application in which we think our test would be useful in, in helping to achieve. You mentioned sexual activity um, plays a role in, in the vaginal microbiome and the composition of the microbiome. Is, does that mean that we should all be having more sex? A lot of people are saying that, and I believe it, but is that what you meant? Uh, no, what I meant by that is that a, a partner uh, has their own microbiome, uh-huh. be it uh, the, the microbiota of, of the penile skin. Okay. Uh, 
and that will be a source of potentially pathogenic bacteria. I see. So it's just highlighting the fact that different types of activities or different types of, uh, of behavior, such as uh, you know, the, the act of douching or using other types of hygiene products, these are things that potentially could disturb an existing microbial community in, in the lower reproductive tract and lead then to a change in the microbiome of the vagina. Mm. Wow, so this is not just about preterm birth. This is about women's health. This is about cancer. This is about HPV. This is about HIV. Um, this is incredible. This is something that hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later, will be at every OBGYN's office just for routine care. We, we really think so. I mean, uh, th this type of research uh, ha has really exploded. Uh, the focus on the, on the lower reproductive tract microbiome is a really uh, hotly researched area. I was lucky enough to get involved in particular in the context of pregnancy in this field uh, around 15 years ago as it was starting to emerge. Um, but you know, it has been recognized since then that, that the reproductive tract microbiome, particularly lower reproductive tract microbiome, is playing a critical role in a lot of different areas of women's health. So we, 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 do, vision, we do view this as a, as a disruptive technology that could have a really important impact on on how we identify women at risk of different pathophysiologies and disease states, uh, but also as a tool potentially for, for monitoring how an individual is responding to a treatment or a therapeutic intervention. And of course, as we've discussed a lot today, um, there's a lot of different ways in which it could be used in the context of pregnancy and trying to prevent preterm birth. Yeah, absolutely. And the other the other um, diseases and conditions that we discussed uh, that you mentioned uh, in passing HIV, HPV, cervical dysplasia, bacterial vaginosis, miscarriage, all these things are related to the vaginal microbiome. Would would that um, probiotic probiotic tablet that you mentioned earlier or the tampon like um, uh, therapeutic to, that you put inside the, the vagina, would that could that help all of these conditions? Yeah, there are several products like that. Um, I think most of the new products that are being developed in that area are, are targeting vaginal administration, so putting those types of good bacteria directly into the vagina. But that is absolutely con uh, a concept that is being explored by a lot of different companies um, with the idea being exactly as we've discussed, if we can optimize and encourage the, the, the right and optimal bacteria in that niche, it could help. Uh, to prevent a lot of these different types of associated uh, infectious types of etiologies. Yeah, uh, specifically with HPV, it is, um, as you know, there's uh, over a hundred strains of HPV, um, more being discovered every day. There are only um, a few that are uh, the, the high uh, risk cancer causing, but the rest of them are, you know, low growth cancerous strains and also potentially dangerous. But you know, you, your OBGYN will say it will clear on its own, and often it does. But when it doesn't, I wonder if it's because you've got a potentially low bodyguard, high bad guy vaginal microbiome. I think that's quite possible. We've been involved in some of the earliest work investigating that link between progression of cervical cancer and the vaginal microbiome with one of my colleagues here, Professor Mara Curie in Imperial College. And, and indeed, our data has, has indicated that women who have uh, CIN you know, two or three have more like, are more likely to have a, a higher prevalence of these types of suboptimal vaginal microbial community compositions that we've been talking about. But not only that, we, we recently published an article showing that in women who experience clearance 
of CI, of, of HPV infection and CIN. Mm-hmm. Those women that are clearing it are most likely to have their microbiomes dominated by these good lactobacillus types of species. So I, I, I think there's more and more evidence uh, supporting that idea coming out. And this is a question that I'm going to ask Dr. Sykes, your colleague, but I want to ask you too, what can women do now? Should I eat all of the sauerkraut in the world, all of the Greek yogurt with the probiotics? Should I take probiotic supplements, um, eat kimchi, um, what's the other one, that drink, um, kombucha? Or is it like, <laughs> or is it like that's not going to make a difference. You either do or you don't. Your body's doing its own thing and it's, can we take external agents now? just over the counter to help you know how can we change our vaginas david yeah it's it's a, it's a really important question um right now i i genuinely can't really recommend any over-the-counter products based on evidence that are likely to promote the vaginal microbiome to be in an optimal state really not, yeah. e- not um, even yogurt well i mean look there, there's a couple of different ideas to unpack here. Yeah. The idea of, of eating things like yogurt, uh, 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 kefir, and, and, and these types of things are fantastic for general health, okay? There is some evidence that those types of products can help encourage uh, a beneficial change in the gut microbiome. Oh. And that potentially would oh. have a very good impact on the way in which your immunological responses to your vaginal microbiota uh, 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 might, might, might uh, occur. Okay. So. With most things, uh, you know, an individual who is tired, run down, not eating well, not exercising, has a suppressed immune system, they are potentially at a higher risk of having a shift or a change in their microbiome, uh, including in their vaginal microbiome in a negative way. Smokers have a higher propensity or a high prevalence of these types of sub-optimal uh, or, or high-risk microbiome compositions in the vagina that we've been talking about. So general health and well-being is already a fantastic step in the right direction of encouraging an improved vaginal microbiome. Trying to avoid some of the, the types of things that I've mentioned that would potentially cause a negative shift in the vaginal microbiome is a, a, a certain things to avoid. So things like douching or, or, or other hygiene practices that might change the pH of the microenvironment of the vagina and discourage the good bacteria to grow and potentially encourage the bad bacteria to grow should be avoided. And of course, if an individual is having symptoms, um, they should talk to their, their, their medical healthcare professional because ultimately if one does have an infection, then it might be a necessity to have some sort of an antibiotic treatment. But we are very hopeful that, and, and we know that there are a lot of companies working on developing uh, robust and, and, and effective and, uh, uh, products over the next, and I think we will start to see these come to the market over the next couple of years that, that hopefully can promote the vaginal microbiome to be in its most optimal state and get the good, good bugs growing and, and displace those bad bugs. Wonderful. So I'm going to ask again about the test. How soon? We are envisioning a form of the test reaching market within the next four years. There's a number of different steps we have to reach and, and, and sort of uh, 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 regulatory steps, but also obviously funding steps and, and, and challenges that we need to overcome to enable this to reach, to reach uh, the bedside. So that would probably in the first instance look something like a service provision model where a swab uh, is, is given to, uh, uh, you know, passed down to one of the, the labs that are existing in a, in a clinic or in a, in a center 
and, and ideally the, the, the swap would be placed straight in there. In the long run, we'd love to be able to be creating small bedside tests uh, or devices that can be placed in any clinic anywhere in the world and, and a swab analysis performed, but that's, that's, that type of a device is much further off than, than uh, the, the one that we're currently working with. So as with all of these different types of inventions, there needs to be a series of checks and balances in place to test the efficacy, to test how well this will work independently uh, in, in different uh, environments and understand what the limitations of the methodology are. So that's what we're currently undertaking now. So we're, we're hopeful in the next uh, few years that we'll start to see this uh, reaching market. Yeah, and uh, that might seem like a long time for someone like you or me who are um, a little bit closer to this and uh, so excited to see it reach market. But the reality is that that's this, a snap of a finger away. Four years, especially in the, in the, in the lens of science and uh, progress, is very soon and very quick. So again, congratulations. This discussion has been very illuminating. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Congratulations again on this. And please come back very soon. The minute that you have published the uh, study on the, not the fridge, but the microwave device that you can uh, wheel into a doctor's office um, we look forward to having you back on, on the show. Well, thank you so much. I'd love to come back and, and talk about some more exciting work that we're doing here at uh, Imperial. So thanks again for your time. Thanks for joining us today on Modcast. We want to thank you for your support, attention, and interest in learning more about research at March of Dimes. March of Dimes is a 501c3 charitable organization founded in 1938. Its mission is to end preventable preterm birth and improve the lives of all moms and babies so that everyone has a strong and healthy start. Research is one component of our work and the focus of ModCast. If you'd like to learn more about the other areas we work in and take the next step and get involved, find us at marchofdimes.org, on your social media venue of choice, or like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast. We can't do this without your support. Consider getting involved with your local March of Dimes group, joining us at a March for Babies event, or donating to the cause. I'm Alessia Plohi. See you next time.